0: Welcome to the Restaurant Boiler Room, Season 4, Episode 7. I'm your host, Rick Ormsby, Managing Director at Unbridled Capital. Today in the Boiler Room, I'll be giving some deeper perspectives on the M&A environment from our Q2 lender survey across the franchise lending space. I'll also talk about deal cyclicality during any calendar year and address some real estate valuation considerations in a slowing deal market. The Restaurant Boiler Room is a one-stop shop for multi-million dollar merger and acquisition activity and financial complexities affecting the franchise restaurant industry. We talk money, deals, valuations, and risk delivered to the front door of franchisees, private equity firms, family offices, large investors, and franchisors on a monthly basis. Feel free to find our content at Unbridled Capital's website at www.unbridledcapital.com. Now, let's enter the boiler room. Well, here we are. I just came back from a little vacation I thought I might share with you guys and, g- and gals. Uh, uh, it's always been a bucket list. I mean, do you have a bucket list of like a trip you've always wanted to go on? Small k- kid who grew up, me, in small-town Kentucky... Uh, Actually, when I was in my early, uh, you know, like I was was like 10 years old or so, we lived in near Kentucky Lake and Lake Barkley in the western part of Kentucky. And for people who've been down to that area, you'll know it's an enormous man-made lakes by TVA. Back in, I guess, the 1960s, maybe. It's just like this little microcosm of people who like to be on the water down there uh, because it's just so beautiful and, you know, in the middle of nowhere in western Kentucky. So I grew up loving the water. And ever since I was a kid, I, I kind of, well, I don't know about a kid, maybe in my early 20s, I've wanted to go on a trip, a catamaran, a sailing trip down in the British Virgin Islands. Maybe you guys have seen some of these things on TV, so, uh, you, you know, or whatever, or have some friends who've been on a trip like this, but we piled five couples. Fortunately, three of them were doctors. So if I was going to get hurt, you know, I had kind of built in people to help. But we had five couples and we uh, we piled into a fifty-foot catamaran and went down to the British Virgin Islands for a week. And man, what an adventure. Oh my goodness. We, you know, kind of did about, I don't know, somewhere between three to five hours a day maybe of sailing, and then the rest of the time kind of just went and explored the area, and it was kind of the trip of a lifetime. My wife got a little bit sick, you know, a few days with some of the big trade winds and some of the big waves, but it was a heck of a heck of a week, and so I'd encourage it if you have the, a wild hair to do it, reach out to me, and, and uh, I'll tell you about the experience. But the cool thing was, I'm sitting here one day, man, in this place called The Baths, which is... Like evidently, only in the Maldives and in the British Virgin Islands do they have this like exact kind of rock formation? So it looks like God sprinkled a bunch of gravel in the middle of like of the water. And you have these like big boulders kind of piling on top of each other, and they form like this little kind of like neat little maze of water and caves and things like this. And so we're sitting there hiking through it. It takes like 45 minutes to get through it, man. It's just really neat. And uh, on the other side, I pop out and I run into a Taco Bell franchisee. Can you believe that, man? There were about 20 people on this edge of the island. It's in this on an island uh, called Virgin Gorda in the British Virgin Islands. There's about 10 of us there, maybe 15, right? I mean, nobody. And my group was, t- was 10. So if there's 15, then that means there's only five people. But they were like one of five or six people there. It was a Taco Bell franchisee. I won't name him. And his wife, and they were uh, doing a catamaran as well. And what a small world, man! So I guess the story is, you know, always watch your back because you never know who's going to be who's going to be there, right? I was told once there's a you know a longtime guy I've known in the KFC world who is a who is a corporate guy who he was like the second or third person in charge of KFC in the '80s, and he was coming back from a business trip, and and he said there were some uh, some guys who were bad mouthing KFC in a row in front of him that were going to a KFC corporate headquarters. But they they were saying bad things about KFC and he heard it sitting right behind him and went promptly over to the uh, to, to find out what department they were going to and and uh, told them not to not to buy the products they were selling so I, I hope I've learned that lesson sometimes I need another you know knock in the head but isn't that a crazy story about running into a franchisee in the middle of basically in the middle of nowhere okay so a couple of updates for today one is, I just wanted to let you know I just got selected to be a panelist at the upcoming Restaurant Finance and Development Conference, which is, I believe, November fourteenth through sixteenth in Las Vegas. So, uh, you know, if you're going to be there, make sure to check that out. I'll be on a panel with some lenders and some uh, deal makers to just kind of talk about the state of the industry and M and A this year. It's a good convention for those of you who might be listening who haven't attended. I mean, it's decidedly loaded with lenders and lawyers and brokers and advisors. So you know, you get some really good perspective. You know, a lot of real estate people too. Not a ton of franchisees there. There are some, but it's a it's like a deal makers kind of event. But it's a good place to go sink your teeth into the industry for like two and a half to three days and get like a crash course. I mean, you leave with your head spinning. There's so much material and content. So. I'll be doing that. I look forward to it. Hope hope to see you out there. We go every year. You know, it's just part of our part of our deal, and we enjoy it. A quick market update. I've said this before. Back in 2021, uh, seems like a million years ago now, right? I think our company closed 30. Unbridled closed 37 deals, and then here we are this year. We've got like I think you know four or five deals closed, and we've got 12 deals active that you know we're hoping will close in the next you know two or three months. And four or five others that we're going after, you know, kind of puts our deal volume, you know, a little bit below half of what it was last year. I've said this several times, not, you know, a lot of it's not a surprise because uh, because of the, you know, the high push and high pace of 2021 with franchisees selling their companies in an up market and uh, wanting to avoid what ended up being a flop. But we thought at the time there's going to be enough you know, Democrat votes to maybe turn out the cap gains tax and increased it. And if that was going to happen, you know, a lot of people selling their companies are going to pay, you know, millions of dollars in extra taxes. So I think that was a catalyst to get things moving in 2021. But 2022 was going to be less because just because of the momentum of 21. But obviously, you know, in 22, and, and especially as we've pushed on this year, I think people have not been aware of the changing market conditions as quickly as they've changed. I'm, you know, kind of a realist. I mean, a lot of you will know me as an optimist, but I'm, but I'm really kind of a, a, you know, a realist, and I'll kind of give you my perspectives this, this on this podcast. But of those kind of you know, four or five deals we're going after, one or two of them are now distressed. I mean, not bankruptcy, but but just you know, the lender is owed more than the business is worth, and there's you know, kind of a restructuring advisor, you know, or or at least the you know the ownership is. Is 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 looking to to sell, and you know what do you do when you're in that kind of a situation? You've got you know obviously to get the permission and the buy-in from the lender. You know you have to work with your franchisor if you're behind on your payments. There's a number of things. I think when you talk with folks in the industry, they've been a little slow to see kind of the the effects of the high commodity cost increases and you know in the labor situation, and then the fall off in traffic at the restaurant level in many brands just because. Of the high cost of gas, I mean, I talked to you know, I mean, I just saw a stat the other day that said this is directional, right? It's not supposed to be exact, but I'm I'm thinking I saw a stat that said, you know, this year that grocery prices are up six and a half percent, and restaurant prices are up like ten percent, right? So that gap is is starting to become meaningful, especially as gas prices stay you know persistently high. And you know, I, I feel really bad because I mean, I'm in this industry like anyone who's a restaurant franchisee, right? I mean, we tether our future to the restaurant business, and things go up and down. So I'm, you know, I'm not like overly worried about it. But 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 you know, you know, with the cost pressures being so high, franchisees are raising their prices, and at some point, folks just kind of are, you know, you're you're pushing, uh, you, you know, kind of the price elasticity curve, and people don't want to. Spend the money anymore, and so I think we're seeing a big fall off in transactions. That's being masked a little bit by by some of the pricing increases that may be showing some you know increase in same store sales in brands. But if you dig into it, you're going to see that a lot of the brands are showing transactional declines. And I hope that obviously drops. I mean that that's the reason uh, you know gas prices are always the culprit when you see transactional drops because of the you know for, for this reason those kind of things had an impact you know you know they've had an impact this year i had some guy tell me today that his sales are up 6% year to date but his ebitda is down 30% there's a couple of, of of firms large ones that are either publicly traded or their debt is publicly traded uh, and, and you can see some pretty i won't name any companies but you can see some pretty kind of eye popping ebitda drops from you know first and second quarter this year over first and second quarter last year some of them in the tune of 50% or more so, there's been an adjustment. Pricing can't, you know, is, is always meant to, you know, or let me say this most people don't take pricing in advance of cost pressures. They do it in arrears. So, it takes a while to catch up. You know, as a country, I would say many of you who listen to this probably would agree with me. You can't expect to print money when the economy shuts down for six to nine months. And then have and not have a comeuppance at some point, right? I mean, there was a. I mean, if we hadn't had the amount of money that was jolted into the system after COVID, after six months of shutting or nine months, six months, whatever you want to say of shutting the, you know, economy basically totally down, you would expect a massive recession. And so, I'm hopeful that the that 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 the positive side of this would be that we're just going to be in for some maybe kind of like some gentle pain over the next six, six to eighteen months. But it's certain that it could be that it could be worse than that. Is it leveling out in terms of EBITDA decreases? And again, this is brand by brand, geography by geography. I mean, I've heard a couple of guys just today tell me that they're hoping that the pace of increase of commodity costs will basically stop in the August-September timeframe. Now, you know, that's not that's one that's one guy who told me that. He still says the, the labor situation is persistently difficult. But it's improving. And I think it'll be interesting to see what happens if we do get into a recession, if the labor force situation shifts into the employer's favor. And maybe, just maybe, a reset of some kind, like a recession, is going to be needed to get some of, uh, you you know, to get kind of more of a balance in the labor front between the employer and the employee. I don't know. I don't know how to assess any of it. But I know that in the short term, we've all been seeing a a bit of a, a bit of a drawdown this year, especially as interest rates also increase. And, you know, so our deal flow as a company is down a little bit. And I think... I asked uh, three or four guys I was on the phone with today, uh, you know what what they're seeing in the marketplace. We don't have, a, you know, my company doesn't have a perfect view of what of what of, of what deals are out there across the spectrum of M and A. But I hear consistently from the folks I talked with today that that it's a dry as a bone out there. Some of that now, guys and, and, and girls listening, is that it's a, it's a little bit cyclical, right? It is normal in the summertime that things slow down a little bit. You know, typically what happens is people come off the end of the year. Usually they get their year in PLs, some of them are audited. Whenever, you know, all the accruals are made and they're sitting probably around the end of January, the first of February, and then people kind of dust off their 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 financial statements. They look at what happened in the last year and they make kind of their planning decisions for the following year. And so typically in the February, April, and and, and March time frame, you know, MA firms like ours are typically really busy getting new assignments, right? And then, you know, you're kind of closing some assignments that lingered past the pri- the, the previous year end on December 31st. And then usually, you know, you're really busy up to May and then you usually spend the summertime. You know, there are new assignments that come on board. I mean, I'm talking over a 20-year window here, so every year could be different. But usually, you know, you're kind of working on due diligence across a number of deals during the summertime and the new transactions coming to the market are somewhat slow in the summer. And it just kind of sort of usually happens to be that way. Then in the early fall, usually August is a really slow month, and then you get into like September, October, conventions start to happen again, and people start to to think about selling their companies, they start talking, they start seeing their neighboring franchisees, you know, usually they've gone through the first half of the year's. Covenant compliance with their lenders, and so there's usually a little kick up in business and new activity in the fall, in the early fall, and then in the late fall as well, usually around November, and then it slows down, you know, new new assignments in into November and December. So that's kind of the pacing and sequ- sequencing and cyclicality of our business. So I think summer is generally slow so i'm not sure whether i interpret the slowdown right now as being due to economic conditions and due to ebitda dropping certainly some of it is that way but uh, but i'm not sure whether you know how much of it is just the natural normal summer cyclicality of the slowdown of M&A. so keep in touch and keep attuned to everything i got a cool little webinar switching gears here coming next next month in august and we're going to be talking, I want to take a deep dive into real estate. And I just wrote down some real, I'm, I'm going to have two people on, on uh, to, to interview them and talk to them. And so you won't want to miss that. One is going to be uh, Chelsea Mandel, who's the co-founder of Ascension, which is a, a, you know, a, a real estate investment, kind of not a real estate investment, but mostly a sale leaseback company out of New York and California. They're really good. And so they're going to have a perspective on the sale leaseback market. And then I'm going to invite in Josh Lewis of National Retail Properties, who's a direct real estate buyer. Their company is a publicly traded REIT, and they buy you know a lot of uh, real estate. They bought a lot of real estate on, on deals that we've done, especially in the KFC world. And they're going to talk, you know, Josh is going to give his perspective as a direct buyer of real estate and what's going on. And so kind of wrote down some questions and some of these are going to be, you know, I'll talk just today about a few of them, but, you know, I'm going to ask them for a macroeconomic update and what's changed in the real estate market with buyers and sellers during this past year. You know, my sense is that the cap rates have, have stayed sideways. We're starting to hear of buyers, real estate buyers retrading deals a little bit during due diligence or forcing, you know, kind of cash terms or quicker terms on closing to the real estate sellers. So I I feel like there is, you know, a little bit of evidence of that in a couple of our deals. I do think we're seeing a movement of maybe 25 basis points or so of of, uh, of worse cap rates. And this is a question I'll have for the duo when we get on the webinar, but because there's so much cash in real estate deals, especially small real estate deals, it takes a while for the market to adjust to interest rate increases. So, you know, while cap rates generally move in the same direction as, as interest rates, there's usually a delay there because of all the cash that's involved in the offers that are like currently underway. So, you know, and then the locking of interest rates with people who are buying and selling the real estate. So that's a, you know, so, so I think we're going to see cap rates change a little bit in the upcoming months, a little bit more than they have since we've had, and we'll continue, I think, to have continued interest rate increases. So we'll talk a little bit about that. I want to dig really deeply into the terms of due diligence and how those are changing, you know, whether buyers are, are now being able to you know, force sellers into into stronger personal guarantees, whether they're more keen on buying real estate at a lower price per square foot, which was always an issue, you know, because some of these restaurant companies might be sitting on a tiny lot that does 2 million in sales and the real estate value at an 8% rent to 5 cap rate, I mean, just throwing it out there is like, like $3.8 million or something like that. And if you divide that by the square foot of the, of the lot, you get this astronomical number so you you kind of get you get, you know, some of the buyers get the heebie jeebies based on price per square foot, even if the rental factor and the cap rate are reasonable. So want to dig into that a little bit. What kind of concessions are sellers having to of real estate having to make as they get into due diligence right now? You know, we did have a little bit of worry in the 1031 market about it changing, maybe going away, maybe shifting a little bit, maybe cap gains not being able to be deferred. And so, uh, while it looks at the moment that we're not going to have much economic, you know, change to the tax situation, again this week I think Mansion came back and is saying no to some of the proposed changes in tax legislation. Again, uh, you know, I think that's something we'll 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 dig into. And I think you know, want to talk about financing real estate. So you know, typically when you're financing business loans on the M and A side, or just the you know just the opco they call it, you know, operating company those can be like typically speaking 10year 10, amortiz- 10 to 12 year amortizations with five to seven year terms. you know and you can fix those rates, but typically what's happened in the past in a muted interest rate environment is someone will take a you know a loan with a five-year term and a 10 to 12 year amortization and then they will refinance it after five years, right when it comes due. But on the real estate side, it's a little bit different. Real estate investing, you know you, you know a lot of the real estate people are looking for 20 to 25 year uh, amortizations and fixed interest rates in terms that coincide with their amortization, right? So they can lay out their cash flows and their rental payments. So we'll dig into that a little bit. Geography is going to have a, a role to play here in terms of cap rates. Brand will also have a role to play in cap rates. I mean, it is true that like a Pizza Hut dine-in asset is going to have a cap rate that's way worse than a Taco Bell, you know, kind of asset. So. Because the nature of Pizza Hut dine-in assets are kind of going away, right? For those of you who listen, you know that and just driving your Main Street USA and you see that kind of uh, the, the dine-in assets in, in Pizza Hut are largely getting converted and relocated into delivery restaurants. And it leaves some of the dine-in assets are really cranking it still and doing well, but but the cap rates in the marketplace are reflective of that transition. and And you have that across, you know, all kinds of different brands. That's... Next time, uh, I hope you'll enjoy that. And and now let me dig a, dig a little bit into this lender survey. One of the problems I had last time, I think you get a laugh out of it if you listen to the last podcast, right? Was like I had uh, like Mike Egan and uh, John Dysart. Yeah, I had these guys uh, lenders, and we were talking, and I asked them all these questions, but I didn't get a chance to kind of. Lay out what the survey results were from the other 22 respondents, the other 22 lenders who like voted on the answers that I asked. And I do this twice a year. So I'm just going to go through this just a little bit. Because it wasn't clear. It was funny, like there's this ringing noise, right? When I was doing the webinar, like panic at the disco, right? Like, it, so I, I like hurdled, hurdled the dog out in my living room, ran upstairs, grabbed the iPad, and you know, I had all these like grand notions of being able to show you guys who were watching on the webinar, like a pie chart of all the answers to these questions with all the respondents. Didn't exactly happen that way. So let me go through it a little bit. So, You know, there's like 15 questions. I'll go kind of quickly over it and just shoot out some other you know opinions that I have. First one was, what is your opinion of the operating environment right now? Now, you have to remember that lenders see things in arrears. They see things probably three months old because they are looking largely at covenant compliance and bank documents and P&Ls on a quarterly basis in arrears, right? So you finish your second quarter, let's call that June 30th. And then oh, it January, February, March, April, May, June. Yeah, June thirtieth. And then like the you know the, you, you you submit the documents to the bank and they get them like July fifteenth, right? So they're not going to know what what second quarter financials really look like, other than anecdotally through talking to guys like us. You know, on the M and A side, we're in front of it like a hawk, right? Because we're looking at deals real time and how much and how much EBITDA is changing. And of course, we're selling these businesses based on the current twelve month trailing twelve month financials. So we're like. Uber interested in what's happening today, yesterday, and tomorrow, but the lenders are typically behind by as many as three, four months, as little as a month and a half. Okay. So, what's the operating environment at the time? You know, we, we uh, you know, of the 22 respondents, 36% said dip, difficult but improving. I bet that changes because I bet these results are based on Q1 compliance. When they see Q2, this number will change, I think. Difficult and likely to get worse, 41%. And then uh, multi-year correction is in the way. It's 14 percent, and normal but a bit challenged is 9 percent. If that gives you a kind of a viewpoint. And again, I think that those are going to shift based on Q2. This was didn't this this survey a while conducted only a month ago did not have the benefit of seeing of the lenders seeing the Q2 compliance. How much is your loan volume dropping because of rising rates? said not much change. 36% said modest drop, but should turn around later this year. And then 18% said modest drop, that'll get worse. What is your opinion of the likelihood of the severity of a recession? This is kind of old, but uh, it said 50% of the lenders, 22 respondents said recession very likely affects modest and somewhat lingering. And then you had about split. Down the middle, 25% each saying recession very likely with a quick bounce back, and then recession possible. No one said re- recession very likely with with long and painful outcomes. So that was interesting. I thought that might change slightly if that was if that was asked today. I think that would be at least a sliver of yes out of 22 you know respondents. Wouldn't you think so too? Okay, how many franchise M&A deals are you personally trying to fund? You know, of the 21 responses on this one, 52% said zero to three. 38% said four to six, and then the remaining small sliver said more than six, basically. So, you know, I think that's consistent with what the marketplace is showing. So if you're a family office or private equity group and you're like, man, deal flow is slow, just hear this from me and from the results of this survey to hear, you know, it's it, it that's true. You know, it's true. Deal flow is slow. It's slower. The deal flow may not have slowed as much on the real estate side, but on selling operating companies and franchise businesses, yes. So I think this corroborates that as well. And M&A does typically really well. We're a leading indicator. I'd say we're the point of the spear. So typically what ends up happening is like when things are really good, we're really busy. When things are really bad, unfortunate, because we don't want things to be really bad, we're typically really busy. M&A advisors, right? When things are getting better, we typically start getting busy. But when we're in a transition from things were good to things are getting slightly worse, you typically see that's the time where the brakes are typically put on the advisory work that we do. And my guess is, without, with, without knowing or having a crystal ball, that probably it'll stay this way for the next six to nine months. Again, not knowing what the summer cyclicality is like this year and how much of it is just due to summer and how much of it's due to slowing deal flow. How many of your M&A deals are getting retraded? Of 21 responses, 33% said some, 33% said a few, but isolated to a circumstance or a brand. Uh, There's a a couple of brands out there where they're just kind of almost wholesale retrading going on because performance continues to drop. Um, And then 15% said many or most are getting retraded. And then 20% said not many or not more than normal. I thought that was kind of interesting. So chew on that. Um, It's definitely becoming a little bit more of a buyer's market than a seller's market, right? No surprise there. I don't know if you're seeing that on the residential real estate side too, But you certainly are seeing it on on the business side. How many of your deals are falling apart, I asked. And with 21 responses, we had 43% saying a few, isolated to the circumstance. 43% saying not many, no change from normal. And then 15% are saying some. I can tell you that unbridled, we have always prided ourselves to keeping a 90% success rate of the deals we take. Time will tell at the end of this year, but I think we'll probably drop a little bit from that ninety percent this year, maybe into the eighties. I'm, you know, I'm not sure. That still means on a base of fifteen or sixteen deals, we'll close just a couple of them, right? Maybe three of them won't close. You know, so that sometimes percentages can be deceiving, but I do think there is. There is, um, you know, it's just the environment's conducive to some deals coming off the table and pausing and then coming back and revisiting at a time when it's stronger. And let me pause here for a second for you franchisees that are listening and just want you to just want to say, man, I, I just be cautious about talking with anybody about the value of your company and making a decision to sell your company based on bad information only to find out the value in the market is lower than what you thought it was or not consulting someone like, you know, like me who could tell you what happens if your, you know, EBITDA lowers as we go into due diligence, what effect that has on the price. There's a couple of reasons why that's such a big deal. Number 1, you do not want to have your business on the market unless you're 90% certain or more that you're going to sell it, right? There are major confidentiality issues with your employees you don't want you don't want to deal with especially in this type of an environment all of the you know people leaving right and all of your tenured staff panicking if you sell a company and then you take it off the market that's terrible number 1 number 2 does it impact the relationship with the franchisor if they know that you're going to sell right but then you back away it may change the franchisor's willingness to help you or you have to think through that i'm not saying that's the case but but it certainly could be the case right You know, and I think the other thing is, and this is underrated, it's like you are dead meat if you come out to the market and then you don't sell, and then you come out to the market again, and then you don't sell, and then you come out to the market again. You got basically two shots. The first shot, you're clean, man. People go after your business. The second shot, you're going to lose maybe 30, 40, 50% of the people who are looking at it the first time. It's just the nature of the beast. The, you know, the people who look at it the first time and want to make an offer, or looking through it with some due diligence, those folks, you know, some of those folks are going to say, "I'm just not interested now. I've got other things. I went through another acquisition." Because it is true that people who look at deals for sale are also looking at other deals for sale, and they're not only looking at your brand; they're looking at other brands, right? And if in the interim. They decide to go bite off another pizza company and buy it. Well, that means they can't make an offer on your pizza company because it would be a conflict of interest, right? And they have non-competes with the brand. So that happens. And people who are acquisitive typically keep looking to acquire, and then with the business comes back on the market, they may not be around. But the other reason is, you know, it signals to the market that you're not serious, right? And so a lot of people who were interested before may say, eh, "I don't want to fool with this. It was for sale before." You know, it's kind of like dead fish, right? It stinks now. So you got to be very cautious about your timing and your approach. And especially in a bad market or a market that's trending worse, you need to get good advice about what realistically the value of the business will be when you cross the goal line and the deal closes. Cool? Okay. Next question. Has your underwriting gotten tougher? 45% said yes, a bit. 36% said yes, moderate. And then 18% said no. Again, lenders say that kind of stuff all the time. And the funny lenders want to give money to people who don't need it. But those who want it or need it, typically it's harder. So my guess is this this answer has changed a little bit too. My guess is you're going to see almost 100% of people saying that their underwriting has gotten tougher now. And it's just because of comps and trends. Like I said, commodity costs, labor inflation, traffic issues, and interest rates. What percentage of your clients currently out of loan covenant compliance and You know, right now we said, you know, 85% said 10% or so. 10% of respondents said 10 to 25%. And 10% of respondents said 25 to 35% of my clients are out of loan covenant compliance. But that's based on Q1. I think those numbers will change pretty significantly for Q2. Which deals are the most likely to get done through your bank? This is always interesting. 42.9%, 43% said tier one smaller deals with low leverage now that's a big big shift that's 21 respondents um, and these are all big national national and you know and and international banks so 43 percent of them when given the choice said tier one brands the top brands smaller deal sizes that are based on low leverage now that's a huge departure from what we saw in the marketplace last year in the last five years where all these mega deals were happening right okay so so 38 percent said tier one brands, larger deals, higher leverage, okay? That would be more consistent with the trend for the last five years, but that's only 38% of the respondents. And then 19% of the respondents said tier two, larger, low leverage deals. And that's interesting, isn't it? So those would be brands, think about brands that have less than 3,000 units, maybe the largest franchisee in a mid-tier 1,500-unit system who has low leverage. So those deals may be deals we see in the marketplace in the next 12 months. Certainly the larger, highly leveraged deals, a lot of those have already been done. So maybe we'll see more smaller, low leverage deals in tier one and then larger low leverage deals in tier, in tier two. But notice that the trend is low leverage, low leverage deals, low leverage deals, low leverage deals. So that means that you you know if, if you're listening to this if you have cash and you're willing to to have cash in you know greater percentage of cash in these deals you are going to I think be be um, you know obviously it's an obvious comment but your chance of success in closing a transaction through a national lender is going to be much higher. Next question: What segment are you most positive on? This is a good one too. Thirty three percent said specialty. Huh. Interesting. Twenty nine percent said chicken. 24% said burger and 14% said pizza. Pizza's always kind of lagged, you know, because it's a, you know, it's a it, it changes a lot. Pizza changes a lot based on sales. It's a, you know, it's a it's a highly commoditized business. I didn't know that I'd find specialty being the answer for for 33% of the respondents. I thought that was interesting. What part of the loan process is getting the most scrutiny from your risk department? Fifty-three percent said interest rate. Well, that's obvious, isn't it? You know, interest rates are shooting through the roof right now. Forty-two percent said amortization and terms, and the remaining seven percent said personal guarantees. So, I, I think it's uh, you know, so so keep in mind that you're going to be looking at interest rate sensitivity and amortization and term, which it looks like are going to be getting scrutinized a lot at these banks. So, all the more reason to be talking with multiple banks because you're going to, I think, see a departure from everyone's standing in line with the same exact product and the same exact approach, you're gonna see some variability in the next six to nine months. So you're gonna wanna shop a little bit, right? To to make sure you're getting the best situation. What metric is most important to you right now as a lender? 55% said lease adjusted leverage, 32% said fixed charge coverage ratio, and 13% said straight leverage. It's about what I would have expected, right? We still lease adjusted leverage is the biggest, Typically, you see fixed charge coverage ratios being something that most lenders look at secondarily. Some look at primary, but primarily, but, but all really look at it secondarily. And then maybe some of the smaller lenders, um, look at straight leverage. That's a comment. Lease adjusted leverage. What's your ex- expectation of the movement in the next six months? 40% of respondents said 15 to 30 basis points worse or lower. 30% of respondents said 40 to 30 to 45 basis points lower, 25% said 0 to 15 basis points lower, and then a small percentage which eh, looks like, let's see, 79, 5%, which is probably just one person, yeah, said 45 to 60 basis points lower. The average across this is probably like 30 to 40 basis points, right? So. You know, what that means is that that banks are are gearing up to be lending less money on deals is what that means, you know, because they're going to manage the overall proceeds that they'll give a a borrower based on a lease adjusted leverage. And if that's dropping, and it sounds like it will be in the eyes of almost all of these lenders, then you can expect the proceeds to drop and the amount of equity to increase, which means you're either going to have to put higher down payment, reducing your returns or or the price has got to drop, A or B. Where do you see rates setting in the next six to nine months? 50% said 50 to 100 basis points higher from here. 32% said 100 to 200 basis points higher from here. 14% said 0 to 50 basis points higher from here. That's definitely a fluid situation. So I guess in closing, you, you know, I'll continue to do these lender surveys twice a year. Stay tuned at the end of Q4 or in the middle of Q4, we'll do another one. I think it's really helpful to do that. We will be doing a webinar again next next uh, next time, talking about uh, real estate, and I think I'm going to do that twice a year too, because the the cap rate and the real estate valuation. Considerations change so quickly in this market. I mean, my goodness, I've been doing this for over twenty years. I didn't think it was gonna change by the minute, right? We usually <laughs> thought of things that change by the year or by the by six months, but but now I think the importance of getting new information forward to you guys sooner is good. We'll continue to kind of uh, build into getting a couple large operators I'm going to talk to and get their perspective, you know, every couple of months or so on these podcasts. I think that's helpful. So that's upcoming, too. I like to tackle legal challenges, too, and, and asset purchase agreement changes and things like this that you can really sink your teeth into when you're negotiating a deal. We'll do that as well, upcoming. And then we, of course, will have like twice a year, uh, I'll get on with my team and we'll just talk about the M&A market and what we're seeing that's changing in the M&A market. So stay tuned. Thanks so much for for listening and uh, we'll catch up with you next time and get to the British Virgin Islands and you never know who you're going to run into. Take care. Thanks so much for entering the Boiler Room today. You can find our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Spotify. If you like these podcasts, please listen, rate, and review. I also encourage you to visit our website at www.unbridledcapital.com for the best franchise M&A and financial resources in the industry. Our website includes webinars, podcasts, videos, white papers, and a list of our past M&A transactions. Please note that neither Rick Ormsby nor Unbridled Capital Advisors, LLC give legal, financial, or tax advice. These podcasts represent opinions that have been prepared for informational purposes only. We expressly disclaim any and all liabilities that may be based on such information, errors therein, or omissions therefrom.